Geraldine Jameson on Manx Radio. Hello and a warm welcome to my regular summer interlude, which over the next few weeks there will be a second opportunity to listen to a selection of my favourite programme guests. Now, my choice this week is Britain's most famous solo adventurer, the record-breaking Benedict Allen, who has become one of the world's best-known and inspirational explorers, described actually as one who lives the dreams and aspirations of the adventurer. I asked him what drives him and how early on in his own development did this urge manifest itself? Well, I wanted to be an explorer when I was a little boy, and it really was my childhood dream, so I'm living my dream in a sense. But my dad was a test pilot, and he used to fly back and forth to Africa, and as a boy he used to bring me back weaver birds' nests, and I've got a little baby stuffed crocodile, and um, a little snake that he put in a little jam jar, and he filled it up with methylated spirits. So all these things assembled themselves on my uh, bedroom shelves, and uh, for me... These were exciting, almost magical objects. And I just thought, when I grow up, I want to see these places for myself. And I clung on to that dream of being some sort of explorer. And everyone said, you can't be an explorer nowadays. It's too late. The world's been explored. But, I, yeah, I've sort of pulled it off somehow or other by um, essentially just working in a warehouse. That's what I did first. Went to university, worked in a warehouse, and thought I'd just do one journey. And I went off to the Amazon and that that was your first book, actually, Mad White Giant. It was, yes. Um, cause the northeast Amazonia. That's right, yeah. Um, what I decided to do was, again, childhood dream. I, I thought I'd try and cross through the land of El Dorado. I'd always read about Sir Walter Raleigh and uh, how he got lost in the mangrove swamps of the Orinoco, and that was all very exciting. I thought, OK, I'll just do one expedition. My mum and dad say... You know, I might as well just see how it goes. I mean, they're very encouraging. Almost like a gap year. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I, I hadn't taken any time off, or, and they, I was young enough to give it a go. But I think they th- just thought I was going to be a backpacker and, and, and stop at that. But um, I had these these great desires to be some sort of explorer, but I had no money, and that's one of the great prerequisites for being an explorer. And so I worked in the warehouse and just set off there to the Amazon, thinking there are people who live out in the places like the Amazon and the Orinoco, and um, they don't need money. So on that sort of simple premise, off I went. And um, I was um, looked after, really, by Indians who were quite quite in touch with the outside world. They spoke a bit of Spanish and so on. And these people, I think, just felt sorry for me. Mm. And um, the children gradually, well, I think they thought I was quite hilarious because I was incompetent, totally incompetent in their forest, and they just thought... That'd be fun to play with. So the children sort of adopted me. The adults got on with the normal village life. But gradually, through these children, I began to learn about seeing that forest as um, a home, potentially, not not as a threat. And that's how I started to learn about the the um, the Amazon. And um, I mean, it all went badly wrong when I had to, unfortunately, eat my dog to survive um, near the end of that that journey. And um, that's essentially why people asked me to write a book about it. Um, I'd, it was about, I think, almost six months into the journey, and by then I'd been passed like a sort of package from one Indian village to another. Um, everyone thought they didn't really want me to die on their hands, I think, and they, they sort of passed me on. So I was pretty helpless. Um, but learning gradually about this forest, an amazing journey, 600 miles um, through the northeast of the Amazon, on the remotest bits of forest, I dug out canoe and on foot, and then we came to these gold miners, and they decided... 
they just didn't want me there. They'd probably found quite a lot of gold right in the middle of nowhere. Um, and these people say, go and get lost. You know, we don't want you here. And I said, I can't. You know, I'm, I don't know how to live in the forest. And I need the help of my two Indian guides. But they got my Indian guides drunk. And one night, they themselves were drunk. And the gold miners came up to me with knives. And I just knew I had to run for it, run for my life. So I ran out from my hammock, jumped into my canoe with my dog, and paddled away, but eventually capsized, ended up on the riverbank with absolutely nothing. All my possessions, all my food, everything I needed to survive, washed away. And I thought, am I going to see my mum and dad again? I was only 22 when I set off. And I walked and walked with this dog, and um, days went by, I got hungrier and hungrier, began to starve. Then I got malaria and I got dysentery. And one day I remember lying on the on the forest floor thinking, I, am I going to see myself, see, see the outside world again? Am I going to see my mum and dad who've trusted me? Um, or am I just going to die here? And I had to make this decision to kill my only companion, which was a terrible, terrible thing for me. And it's still difficult for me to think about. And this was almost 20 years ago. But I, I killed my dog, I'm afraid, and in order to eat something to survive. And that's how I survived my first expedition. Well, uh, after this amazing survival and, and first expedition, did it cross your mind that you would make a career out of it, that you would actually become a television personality, because you're very much that? Um, I mean, it's, it's all very well to be able to write a book, which you obviously did about that first exhibition. As I said, The Mad White Giant was your first book, and you've written it, well, you've must be up to about nine. Yes, now, feels like it. <laughs> just got the latest one out, which we'll plug towards the end of the programme. But um, because, you see, this is where you differ from most conventional explorers, that you learn about your survival and the places that you visit from the remote tribes people themselves. Now, you, you are never supported by modern technology uh, and 21st century mm. thinking. You, you really rely on thinking eco-friendly, so how would you rate yourself? Because you are popular. I've caught up with you when you're about to give an illustrated lecture here at the Air and Art Centre in the south of the island, which has been a sellout for weeks. So, you see, your fame goes before your Benedict. <laughs> now, how do you compare yourself then with the likes of Sir David Attenborough and Michael Palin, who literally have a cast of hundreds of producers and cameramen mm -hmm. and the latest high technology you could possibly dream up? Um, they're doing a very, very different job. They're both communicators, and they're communicating often about the remote world. And essentially, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing what so many of us really would want to do. I mean, there are so many of us who, if they were told as children could they, that they could be explorers, I think so many of us would have followed my path. It's just that we're told it's not possible or, or you, you need money. I suppose I had that drive from somewhere deep inside me, and I, I never managed to answer your question. because I, I You didn't probably want... didn't like working in that warehouse. Well, I didn't like the work. But that was all, and I was very, very clear in my mind, I wanted to be an explorer. I didn't want to be a TV personality. I didn't want to um, necessarily um, be famous. I, I think I just was immensely curious. Um, you mentioned my approach, which is different from most most explorers' approach. I, I go by myself, I immerse myself with people. That at first was just a practical solution. I had no money. And so I thought, well, these people who live in the Amazon and Borneo and New Guinea, they don't have money either. And I can just learn from them, perhaps, and they'll, they'll feel sorry for me, and maybe I can, I can survive that way as an explorer nowadays. But 
actually what happened was I'd stumbled across something very exciting and very new, which was that um, everyone said the world had been explored, but of course we hadn't looked at the world from the points of view of other people, remote tribal people. For instance, in New Guinea, my second expedition, I went through an initiation ceremony. Having had a disaster, really, in the Amazon, I, I felt I owed so much to these indigenous people, the Indians, who'd helped me until the uh, disaster struck and I, I ran for my life from the gold miners. You know, I felt I needed to understand that forest and not just use people, but really understand their, their way of seeing the world. So I went through an initiation ceremony um, because the local people in New Guinea said, look, you're trying to understand our way of life, but you ought to feel you're prepared to do whatever we do. You shouldn't just be standing back as a Westerner, like a missionary or like an anthropologist. You should be really... Um, but when be- you, would you say initiation ceremony, this was a punishing ritual? This was I mean, I must say now to the audience, this is where I do wish it was television and not radio, <laughs> because when I first met, I've only met you, it was just about an hour ago, literally, Benedict, and I said... Uh, can I see your torso? I mean, yes, that's pretty I, I good, isn't was, it? I thought it was very forward of you, but no, I survived. No, yes, my I, I've got these initiation marks up and down my um, my chest and back. Um, it, it, it was, I, I thought this is going to be a terribly challenging ceremony, and unfortunately, I'd chosen really as a society that had the most grueling initiation ceremony in the world. Um, these people achieve adulthood through going through a ceremony that makes you a man as strong as a crocodile. And what happened was we were led into the crocodile nest. A 15-foot-high fence was erected around the spirit house, which is like the heart of the, the community. And we were led into this. Our heads were shaven, given little grass skirts, led into this arena and told we were not going to be allowed out until men as strong as crocodiles. And the only bit I really knew about were the initiation marks. Um, basically, we were placed on upside-down turned canoes and our chests were cut repeatedly with bamboo blades and then right the way down our backs. I mean, we lost, I think, two pints of blood each, a litre of blood. So we couldn't stand up after this, and it's obviously painful um, as well as dangerous. Um, but I got through that, um, and after two or three days, I sort of recovered. But they beat you also with bamboo well, I was branches. Say, I, thought, I thought the ceremony was ending um, there, um, and that we would just be secluded and learning all these important lessons that made boys into men. But um, unfortunately, we were then beaten. Um, yes, we had to sing happy little songs and dance around and around the spirit house while beating drums. And the elders came out with their big sticks and thrashed us. I mean, really badly. We were, we were bleeding. Already we had these cuts from the initiation mark ceremony. Um, but now we, we were beaten by these, with these sticks. And this was really the heart of the ceremony. It's all about bonding. It's all about forgetting your individual differences and combining together and um, we had to protect each other's backs with our own backs. And so whenever someone was being thrashed, you sort of would offer yourself. So it's all about learning the art of self-sacrifice. And this went on for six weeks, being beaten sometimes four times a day. So um, it's not the part of the ceremony that I knew much about, but I, I felt I just can't leave at this stage. I can't abandon this project. You know, if I'm really committed to being an explorer, and if I'm really committed to these people, you can't just walk out. You've got to followed this through. It was very, very tough. I mean, six weeks later, we emerged, though, feeling absolutely amazing. We felt there'd be nothing as bad again in our lives, and we'd learnt our individual strengths and weaknesses. And so did the rest of the village sort of uh, 
celebrate then, oh, worship it, you to a degree. Well, not, not, no, not worship us, but very, very proud. It was, uh, I was very proud that I'd been allowed to take part in such a ceremony that had been so secret for so long. You must have been the only white man ever to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, now, tragically, in a way, it's, it's never performed again. And this is part of my justification for going through it, because I thought this will create a record for the society. And, yeah, um, times have changed. Forest has been cut down. And um, people no longer are interested in worshipping essentially a crocodile. That brought, of course, perhaps one of your most popular books ever, Into the Crocodile Nest. Wonderful, wonderful title. Yeah, yeah, it is a very... I feel one of the the best sort of acts of exploration I've done. It's not traditional exploration, but it's perhaps where exploration is going to go in the future, which is all about the mind. You know, there'll always be science. There'll always be species that we don't understand. But there's also attitudes of the mind. How do you perceive a place to be? And, of course, the local people had seen the world um, from the view of a crocodile, which is like a role model in the, in the, in, in deep in the forests of New Guinea. Now, camels. Um, you've had a tricky experience or two with camels. Yes, and the camels are very misunderstood. I mean, they, they, some of my, my camels are very misunderstood as well. Um, some of my greatest friends, really, have been camels. I mean... I've, I've had terrible times because camels don't need you. Camels are beautifully adapted to the desert of all the domesticated animals, really. They're, they're the ones that can walk off any time and exist without you. Horses need water and, and, and so on. Dogs need to be fed. Um, but camels, they've got their humps, they've got their noses, which can actually close if there's a sandstorm, and they, they've got their big feet and so on. So that they are amazing animals. And what if you can get them to believe in you, um, that is, you, you become the sort of top camel, protective camel who's going to look after them, then they'll follow you. But they, as I say, they don't need to. They can walk out any time. If you get them on your side, a camel like Nelson um, that I had in, in Namibia um, is absolutely... It gives you so much because you can achieve a sort of freedom in a place like the Namib Desert, the Skeleton Coast, uh, which should kill you. I mean, this is a dangerous, dangerous place, but with the camels on my side, I managed to walk up the, the whole of the Namib Desert. It's about a thousand miles because this camel, Nelson, decided it was okay. I would look after him. You became the first person to be allowed to walk the full length of the skeleton coast of Namibian mm. in southern Africa. It's littered with diamonds. Yes, I mean, the southern half especially, because they, they get washed down the Orange River from the, the heart of Africa. And we all know Kimberley and the famous South African mines. But... Actually, a lot of the diamonds have been washed out to the to the sea, and then the currents off the west coast of Africa uh, washed the diamonds up the coast. So up the skeleton coast we went, and there were the diamonds. So um, someone accompanied me through the work, the biggest diamond area to make sure um, I wasn't secretly hiding diamonds in the ears of the camels. I mean, when, when we left the area, the, the camels were thoroughly searched. They looked in Nelson's ears, which he didn't like at all, just to make sure um, he wasn't. I hadn't put diamonds in there. Um, and then I carried now, on. Now, come on, you must have come out with one tiny ah, I so little want, one I secreted to. somewhere. Just a little baby one. Just a I, I would baby have, I, one. I wanted to. I didn't, actually. It's, it's actually quite hard to find them. And, and this was a serious expedition, so it wasn't very easy to, to, to look for them. But at night, I used to go out, because I'd heard stories, you know, that under the moonlight, the diamonds will shine out from all the, the little stones of the desert. But um, no, I didn't manage to secure any sadly now this was really um, a three and a half month um, journey and you had to survive extreme temperatures negotiate some of the world's highest 
sand dunes and, and cope with numerous dangers. I mean, we've talked about the camels and trying to train the camels and sometimes they could be reluctant. But the extreme temperatures at night to keep the lions at bay, you, you lit fires. But this indeed could unfortunately also be a, a beacon to charging rhino. You can't <laughs> win, it would seem. <laughs> It was um, terrible. Some of these um, fears were, I suppose, imagined, but I, I didn't really know when I was alone there because it, it was a very rare experience. No one walked with camels alone through the Namib Desert. People always go, if they visit the Namib Desert, they go with, with a Land Rover and certainly accompany it. But I was very, very vulnerable out there, no radio contact. So if the camels got spooked even by the lions and just ran off, I'd be in serious trouble. I, I, I needed those animals, and it's very worrying. I heard lions roaring at night um, and um, sort of growling and making funny noises all around me. And they were they were obviously fascinated by camel. I mean, the smell mm -hmm. of camels, um, which I'd brought in from the Kalahari, they, they obviously weren't used to. So the lions were very intrigued. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the yes, camels wouldn't have liked the the undulating sand dunes, and if they're used well, to desert, flat desert. I, I, these camels in particular didn't didn't particularly like traveling at all. Um, I'd um, had to train them over three weeks in the Kalahari, and they, they were having a lovely life living in the Kalahari. They were on a massive farm, um, and they they were the descendants of camels that were used by the the, the Camel Corps, the, the police of South Africa, who used to patrol the Kalahari. And they'd had a lovely little life just sitting on, on, on this farm, wandering around. They'd never done any serious work in their lives, and the last thing they wanted was to do a big expedition. And so they they tried to get rid of me before, before the expedition began by throwing me off and trampling me and kicking me. They knew I was a, a threat to their lovely existence. Um, and they'd also had a very sheltered life. There were, there were, I think about three things they'd never encountered, each of which caused enormous problems. The first was sand dunes, um, and, I'd, and I always assumed camels didn't mind going up and down sand dunes, but the, the, Nelson was horrified by the, the prospect of going up and down these sand dunes, and I discovered the only way I could get him to go up a sand dune was to hum a happy little song, because he, by this stage, realised I was important for his survival, and... Um, he realised if I was humming, um, I was happy and content, and therefore there'd be no crisis if he walked up the camel uh, up, up the dunes. And camels are always having crises, you know. They, they're always they're sort of slightly neurotic animals. But if I hummed happily, Nelson would march up the sand dune. But it took me about a month to discover this. <laughs> up, up till then, I was going around. Then he discovered um, women. He'd never come across women, um, and we met these wonderful people called the Himba, who were out there in the Skeleton Coast, and they. They loved Nelson. They'd never seen a camel before, but Nelson was horrified with these 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 females. He just wanted to run away from them. Um, and and thirdly, um, he'd never seen anything bigger than himself. And, and we came across a giraffe one day, and Nelson had one of his crises. Um, and he, so he <laughs> it's just quite understandable, but um, poor Nelson, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can imagine what he felt when he came when we came across elephants, which are also out there. I mean, he would have nothing to do with them. He just dragged me away. Um, but it was a great experience, and through Nelson and the other camels, I was able to experience this sort of freedom in this place that's said to be so dangerous. Do you do your own filming, Benedict? I mean, mm. in the six-part BBC, BBC Two documentary, Edge of Blue Heaven, that you undertook, now, that was a breathtaking 3,000-mile trek around Mongolia. Of course, that's the land of Genghis Khan. And, and I mean, the whole um, BBC television audience were agog, you know, for each part of that documentary, really, because they experienced it with you. 
Mm. Now, that's your charisma, of course, of being able to tell the story sort of privately as if you were talking to one person. The, that's the, the great joy of these, these little cameras I take. No camera crew. Um, it's just me out there. And people are always writing in saying, it's outrageous. This man's pretending he's alone. Of course, it's a camera crew. But there isn't. It's just, it's just me. And um, that means that... I mean, I'm you might stick your finger up your nose as people do sort of, you know... Well, I try and avoid doing that. But, um, <laughs> do you know <laughs> what I mean? I mean, it's, it's very natural, though, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, the other thing is that you just forget. I imagine after a month or two out there. But that, that journey, yes, it was through Mongolia. That's the next one I did, having learnt so much from camels really through Nelson walking up the skeleton coast then on to Namibia and there the great challenge at the end was crossing the Gobi Desert but again without the camera crew and it means um, you start confiding in the in the little camera as your companion and obviously I was quite lonely out there um, I think it was five months or so before I even got to the Gobi Desert so five months of not speaking English just meeting Mongolian herders who are out there I mean wonderful magic environment um, still people relying on horses relying on camels mm. and I was just alone out there with them but I would talk to this little camera that I'd, I've got very very long arms um, which means I can film myself as I walk along yes and for our audience you're exceptionally tall I have yes to. yes I am yeah which is good it means you can look a camel in the eye and um, it can't intimidate you too much um, but it also means um, I can film myself as I walk along yeah. and um, set up shots with with tripods and all my camels and more recently dogs they've had to learn um to wait and be patient while i do all the extra bits of filming for the bbc but it, it's it's been great because it means do, i've been do, able to do, share the experience do you write millions. a diary every night yeah it's an exhausting procedure i mean not only am i running an expedition by myself um safeguarding hopefully my the lives of my animals and also myself but also writing diary um to record facts that I need um, for later for writing a book, but also talking into the camera, explaining what's going on, um, and my hopes and fears. So it's very, it is very intimate. It, it catches those little, the ups and downs, as you say, the bit where I put my finger up the nose, although <laughs> I try not to do that. But well, somebody today actually said that they saw you do that. That's, 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 that's terrible, I'm sure. Isn't it it's terrible? terrible. <laughs> you see, the, the, <laughs> they haven't mentioned the rest of this exciting series. You no, know, just they just remember. Human factor. Oh, dear, maybe that was Michael Palin. Um, that, that one little bit. But, um, and no. how can you hold a pencil to write a diary in Siberia? Well, when you did that one, which, of course, converted into the ice dogs. Yes. I mean... That apparently was the worst winter in living memory. That was not part of the plan. <laughs> and your dogs, I mean, were a rabble. Yes. You had they were terrible. It was everything combined against me, actually. I felt I knew about camels. I'd learnt how to be comfortable in places like the Gobi Desert and the Namib Desert. And I thought, what about this other animal that has a special relationship with mankind? And that's the dog. And so I went to the remotest part of Siberia that's inhabited. And... Um, um, the idea was that I'd learn to use a dog team and travel a thousand miles up and try and cross the, the Bering Strait. Um, that that failed, um, essentially, the crossing of the Bering Strait because of this, this terrible, terrible winter. But uh, it was also exacerbated by the fact that the owner of the dogs wasn't there to teach me the commands, um, the left and right, um, and stop, I thought was very important. Um, so the, the, the key man who was going to teach me everything, just couldn't be there because he was stuck because of this terrible winter. So I had to learn from scratch from dogs that had no trust in me whatsoever. They were waiting for their owner to turn up. But gradually, during this thousand-mile journey, I managed to get them, these dogs on my side in this terribly dangerous environment, much more dangerous than an ordinary desert or, um, you know, that is a hot desert or the jungle. Because in the Arctic, 
the ice breaks, you go through into that freezing water and you just die, probably in 30 seconds, because you'd have a heart attack. Your dogs would die as well. And I was determined, especially because of this experience on my first expedition where I'd had to eat my dog to survive, not to let down these 10 I mean, you dogs. existed virtually on a diet of walrus. Walrus. Um, What's it like? What sort of flavour? Oh, it's bad. It, raw walrus. That was the try. It's raw. And um, the, the fat was wonderful. It's about an inch of fat, and it's like pure energy. And out there, when it's minus 40 or worse... That's what you need. You're, it's what you need. You feel like biting into this fat. A and banana could, wouldn't be much use to you. It wouldn't, although it would have been... Everything's frozen, of course. So, uh, I don't know, frozen banana. Might, you'd, <laughs> you'd be like cement trying to eat through it. But this, this fat was not bad, but the, the flesh was terrible, like putrid fish. So I avoided the, the, the meat of the raw walrus and went for the inch of fat. And then I had raw whale, a raw seal, and so on. All of these things full of vitamins because they're raw, but um, essentially not, not my preferred diet, I must say. But <laughs> they were what the chooches had, the reindeer herders. And these people were with me for the first two-thirds of the journey. And then I set off alone, and that was a wonderful bit. These dogs yeah. really did respond to me. Um, all of them, really, apart from Bernard, who was a strange dog, um, Bernard didn't do any pulling and I couldn't think why he was there at all. I mean, this is Siberia where people were alive for their lives on these dogs to, to hunt with them and take them safely over the, the frozen water. But Bernard didn't pull and I discovered the only reason why Bernard was there was because he was best friends with Jeremy and Jeremy was the brain box of the team who needed his brain but he wouldn't do anything without his best friend Bernard. So um, this was a sort of problem I was trying to solve as we went along. You have along. to be an animal psychologist, really. Yes, and learn to, to get the trust, essentially, of the top dog. I had this wonderful dog I called Top Dog, who was at the front. And he was this brave, intelligent dog, the first one that would face smells of polar bears, smells of wolves, smells of the most deadly thing of all, water, when there's thin ice. So this brave dog out in the front, listening to my commands. Tachte, which means left. Stu, which means right. And these dogs obeyed me, finally, and it was wonderful, this relationship, again. Uh, they trusted me, I trusted them, and we had this freedom out there in the Arctic, this highly dangerous place. I wonder, does this come into all? I know you've written, of course, the, the book, as I said, Ice Dogs, but your latest work in book form is entitled The Paper Book of Exploration, published by Faber just out this week, as we speak. Um, now, that actually is about other explorers, not so much yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's very lovely. I've, I've, so almost 20 years now, I've done my own thing in a sense. Uh, but this was a chance to look at all the great heroes of exploration. Not necessarily ones we know about. I mean, there are stories of Shackleton and his ship, the Endurance, the way it was crushed by ice and this poor man's hopes and dreams of being a great hero of exploration ruined as, it, as his ship was pulled apart and yet his men stuck by him and he got them all safely out. Wonderful stories like that. James Cook, wonderful I mean, navigator of genius, but for me, the best of the lot because he was such a human person. I mean, there's a lovely tale of him arriving in New Zealand and the Maoris being absolutely frightened and standing on this little rock, shivering with fear and raising their spears, wondering whether, if they should kill him or not or whether Cook was a god and Cook waded through the water towards this little bunch of people who were shivering away with fear. And uh, he went up to this man, showed he spread his arms to show he didn't have any weapons, and then he hugged this man and rubbed his nose in the traditional greeting with this Maori. And that was a, a special man, you know, who was not just of his time, but of all time, and he was able to see these other people as not 
as savages or backward or primitive, but as just people. So people like that and ordinary people, anonymous mariners who we've, we don't even know the names of, but who, who died in remote shores, you know, just trying to understand the world. Well, finally, because unfortunately this clock has literally beaten us, one often hears the phrase, you touched on it yourself earlier, that the world, our planet, is becoming a smaller and smaller place. Are there areas left, you know, for an insatiable explorer like yourself to discover? Well, that, that's what I'm trying to say in, in the Faber Book of Exploration, that we, I was told as a child there was nowhere left to explore, uh, and the central message is that, of course, there's a world to explore. It's not the same exploration of the old days. There aren't the great grand journeys, but uh, it's an exciting world out there. We only know maybe a tenth or a hundredth of the world species. We don't even know how many species are out there. So, But it, it could be that we've only even named 1% of the world species. So there's masses out there to discover. We've mapped the surface of the moon better than the surface of the ocean floor. So it's an exciting world, and that's what I was trying to get over. Well, my most famous solo adventurer and explorer, obviously your charisma belies this grim determination to complete these thrilling expeditions and, of course, endears you to a vast public audience, including our listeners here on Manx Radio today. Benedict Allen, thank you so much for joining me on the Geraldine Jameson interview this week. Thank you. Thank you.